I've said it before, but it bears repeating that there are certain things in this book that you don't want to copy. I hear a lot of talk about the New Testament church and how important it is to get back to the New Testament church. Well, I don't find the New Testament church all that perfect. There's a lot of things about it I don't want to get back to. And I think that some of us will put in such high esteem this early church as if it was perfect and flawless and all-powerful, and it wasn't. I'm sure it made as many mistakes as we make. And I'm glad that the Holy Spirit has decided to record all of the things about that time period and all of the mistakes as well as the things they did right so that we might see that there isn't this standard of perfection that is unattainable. But that they made mistakes like we did, but then those things that are, as we said in the prayer, noteworthy and worthy to follow that we'd latch on to them. Acts 13 is one of those chapters. Rather than something to avoid, this is something to copy because we see here a missionary church, a church that is on the go, a church that is sending people out. And center stage from here on out is none other than Paul the Apostle. Peter occupied the first part of the book. Paul occupies the second part of the book. He has been called the Apostle to the Gentiles. We could reword that and call him missionary to the nations, for that's exactly what he is. He goes all over the world from here on out, burdened with the message of the gospel. In fact, that's his one life's goal, is to preach the gospel to people that they might believe. I wonder if that's our goal. If it isn't, we ought to pray that it would become that. You know, it's so easy to be deceived, as the Bible says, through the deceitfulness of sin, we become hardened. And we can follow things that aren't priorities, things that can occupy our time, and we can be so laden down with the cares of this world that the spiritual world after death Life everlasting seems so distant and so far-fetched that we don't even spend much time investing in it. And so the Bible says to encourage one another daily. Because I'll admit, I forget the truths like seek first the kingdom of God. Well, here's a man who was the missionary to the nations, Paul the Apostle, and the church at Antioch forms a model, something that you is erected that you might look at and copy. A model for service. Every now and then it's good to remind ourselves the purpose for our existence. And we put in our magazines and we put in our bulletins a vision statement, we call it. It's easy to remember. It's simply upreach, inreach, and outreach. And I like to remind myself of that so that I know, am I staying on target? First of all is upreach. That is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Chet exhorted us so beautifully tonight. That we belong to Him and that we have a relationship with Him and we are to bow down before Him as our Lord. Everything we have is His. And then after upreach comes reaching in word to the body of Christ. But you must first have a healthy relationship with the Lord yourself before you're able to give out to anyone else. But you shouldn't stop with just upreach. That's not the goal of the Christian life per se. We're not just to sit under the spout where the glory comes out and go from church service to church service, concert to concert, worship experience to worship experience so we can get blessed. Once we are blessed, we're to pass that blessing on to other people. Disciple other Christians. Help them grow in the Lord. That's in reach. Because we want to be a healthy body of Christ. But then, we will be stagnant if we stop there. If we have wonderful worship experiences on our own and we love the Lord and the body of Christ is growing healthy, well, that's wonderful, but we'll stagnate if we don't outreach. If we don't go out to the world and share with them the truth God has invested in us, then what's the purpose of our existence in the world? We might as well die and go to heaven. But because God has left us on the earth, it means He has a purpose for us. Well, the early church... One of the things they had in perspective was that, that you form your life squarely upon the Lord Jesus Christ, have a relationship with Him, the body is strengthened, and then people are sent out. And you can be sent out in a variety of ways. You can be sent to Jerusalem, 
that is your local town. You can be sent to Judea, which is the surrounding areas. You can be sent to Samaria, which are those places that nobody really wants to go to. You know, it's interesting, if there's a call for Hawaii, boy, I mean, I'd be the first in line, especially this time of the year. But Samaria was the place in the New Testament where nobody, no Jewish person wanted to go to. It was a shunned area. But God called some people to go there. And then there's the uttermost parts of the earth. But it's important that we recognize something from the beginning. And that is that word mission. That has suffered so much. In fact, when you hear the word missionary, it probably brings to mind something other than what it really means. If you've grown up in churches where you've had missionary conferences, usually they're boring. And usually they're very seldom, like once a year. And so you get the idea in your mind that a missionary is someone who is very different than the rest of us. Maybe a little bit odd. Certainly a super saint, because not the average normal Christian is a missionary. And something that's not all that important, because we don't have much activity surrounding that. Well, Webster's Dictionary defines mission as a task assigned and the act of sending. Well, you have a task that God has assigned each and every one of you. And God wants to send you out to do something, whether it's here or whether it's in another country or wherever. But God has a purpose for our lives. And one of the greatest, most fulfilling experiences is when you find out what that is. And you find out and then you begin to flow in the vein of the purpose of God for your life. It's so exciting. And it's so frustrating when you're not. A task assigned, that's a mission. The act of sending, that's a missionary. By the way, God's a missionary. He always has been. His work on earth has always been missionary activity. Did you know that? That's what Jesus was all about. For God so loved the world that He gave, He sent, He missioned His Son on an assigned task to come into this world. Leaving the prerogatives of deity, Jesus took on the form of a man. And talk about the ultimate cross-cultural experience, leaving heaven and coming to this joint. I mean, I know it how it is when I leave America and go to a third world country like the Mideast or India. I mean, there's some definite cultural differences and it makes me homesick. Imagine Jesus leaving heaven to come to, they call it the Holy Land, but Israel. That's tough going. But he did it because it was an assigned task and he was sent by the Father. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And here we see Barnabas and Paul going out on what we call missionary journeys. Before we get right into the text, I want to read something from a noted Christian leader that I agree with. He said, Christian maturity is being a responsible son or daughter of God. It is when you are stopped being concerned about our own needs and pursuits, and you have entered into the global vision of your Father so that you can transform a hurting world. That's maturity. The emphasis in Acts chapter 13... And this is great. This is where we can rest. The emphasis is what the Holy Spirit can do through you. Not what you can do on your own, but what God can do through you. And we see that so often. If you look down in verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. In verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. Verse 9. And Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. So the Holy Spirit's doing it all. They were separated for him. They were sent by him. They were strengthened by him all the way along. Before we again jump right in, for you who haven't been with us all the way through Acts, you have to understand that Luke wrote this book and he's selective. This is not a complete history of Christian missions in the early church. Far from the truth. It's a very distinct, select, narrow focus. 
He forgot all about the gospel going to Damascus. He didn't record the gospel going to Africa. He didn't speak about the gospel going east to Syria and India. But we know from other histories that Thomas the Apostle went to Syria and went to Kerala in India and founded the first work there. But he is focusing on the gospel expanding north and west to where it penetrated the heart of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself, so that we might know how the gospel spread into all the world because from Rome, the gospel has come everywhere, including our country eventually. But it was this revival in the early church that got the gospel out to all the world. In uh, verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, or Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. One thing you notice if you read the book of Acts, and that is how many cities are involved. In fact, 40 major cities of the ancient world are written about in this book. I bring that up because when Jesus first sent out 12 apostles, he sent them out to the villages that surrounded Galilee. It was more rural. There were little townships. But in the book of Acts, the major focus is upon the major cities. You might ask why that is. Good question, and I'm glad you asked that. Because ten years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, almost all of rural life that is, small living communities, were abolished. People were moving into the cities because of the Roman Empire that had spread to all the world. That was the way of life. And so the gospel now is penetrating into the cities where it explodes. And I think this was done purposely by God. The Bible says that Jesus came at just the right time or in the fullness of time. And it came at a time when the gospel could spread. Roads were built by the Roman Empire. The gospel could travel and penetrate more easily. I bring that out because the time in which we live today is much like the Roman Empire around the time of Christ. Whereas a couple hundred years ago, much of the world lived out in the country and in rural areas. Now the population has shifted and most people live inside the cities. And often it's in those cities where the gospel work is most effectively done. I'm not ruling out works of God in other places. I'm just sharing... Uh, a peculiar sign of the time. But we see, first of all, that they landed up in Cyprus. Cyprus is that island out there in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you travel to the Mideast and you travel to Syria or sometimes if you travel to Israel or Egypt, you'll land on Cyprus. A couple months ago, I landed on Cyprus. It's an island out there in the Mediterranean. The interior is filled with mountains. It has a couple of major towns. And they probably started in Cyprus because that's where Barnabas was from. It was home turf. He knew it well. And so they started on this little island. They went from one side of the island to the other, from a commercial city of Salamis all the way to Paphos on the other side. I want you to notice this. Verse 5. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John as their assistant. If you were Jewish you would want to worship in a synagogue every Saturday according to the law. But if you were a Christian and you were Jewish, let's rephrase that. If you were a Christian rabbi, a teacher like Saul, if you were a Jewish teacher visiting another synagogue after the reading of the law on the Sabbath day service, the local rabbi would open up the service to any visiting rabbi to expound on something short out of the Old Testament to give a word of encouragement, to share something that God had laid on his heart. Saul, knowing this, being a Jew, took advantage of it. And he went into the synagogue. And he used the Jewish meeting places as a springboard for all of his missionary activity. This is his pattern all the way through. He didn't just walk into town, bring a PA system and open it up in the center square of the town. He went into the synagogue. He started small, knowing that in the synagogue there would be Jews who were tuned in at least to God's revelation. And there would be Gentiles who had come into the synagogue to hear the word of God. And this would attract them as well. And this is his pattern. 
And also it's a biblical pattern. In the book of Romans, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And he goes on to say in the next chapter, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Why does he say that? And why does he start at the synagogue? Isn't it true that in the New Testament, the wall of division between Jew and Gentile has been broken down? Isn't it true that everybody becomes a child of God on the same basis, Jew or Gentile? Yes, that's true. But you have to understand that the Jew was the one who had all of the natural advantages. Paul said, I could wish that I was accursed from Christ for my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jewish nation. I wish that they knew Christ because he said, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law and the service of God. They've got all the advantages. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the prophets. They've got the covenants with God. So I'm going to begin with them. There came a point, however, when the Jewish community shunned Paul and Paul basically shook the dust off his feet and said, fine. If you're not going to receive me, I'll go straight to the Gentiles. But he started with the Jew first. And that was Jesus. That's exactly what he did too. Remember Jesus, when he commissioned his disciples, said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to the cities of the Samaritans. But begin with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he spoke to the woman at the well of Samaria, he said, we know what we worship because salvation belongs to the Jews. God began with them, established a covenant with them, so the gospel always began with the Jews. In verse 5, it tells us toward the end that they had John, who is John Mark, as their assistant. That little word assistant is interesting. We think, oh, that's their assistant pastor. Well, possibly. Except the word in Greek literally means an under rower. Someone who would sit below in the ship and work the oars, not give the orders. He'd be sweating. He'd be doing all of the work. Or it's also a word that is used of a doctor's assistant, the one who would do all the scrubbing, give him the tools, assist in the operation. It could mean that John was being groomed in the ministry spiritually and Paul and Barnabas gave him counseling work, pastoral work, instruction of the new believers. Or it could mean that they gave him practical work like cooking, cleaning, washing. So here's your ministry. And it could be that that's one of the reasons that John Mark left later on when the going got tough. He said, you know, I, I didn't expect this in the ministry. I'm going home. The truth of the matter is, is that ministry involves both. It involves privilege and responsibility. It involves teaching and instructing and counseling, but cooking, cleaning, picking up trash, whatever needs to be done. And anyone who has that kind of a heart is suitable for ministry. And God can work with that kind of a person. But if a person comes along, and I've met a few, they said, <clears throat> God has called me to a great and mighty work. Well, really? I've never met anyone that God called to a great and mighty work. That's really interesting. You know, I've only met servants that God has called to serve people. What is it like to be called to a great and mighty work? I'd like to know. You see, God calls us to be servants, slaves of one another. And that's what the ministry is all about as well. And it involves a variety of things to do. This has happened a long time ago, so I can share it. But I had a guy on my staff who didn't last very long. And he had great dreams of the future. Because he felt he was very gifted. Very great. Very talented. And you know what? He was. But the crime was is that he knew it. And so he thought that he had to be treated differently. One time I said, listen, I've got something for you to do. I'd like you to gang all of these chairs. We had different chairs back then. Gang them all together, clean them, take them apart, put them back together. Didn't get done. I asked him why and he said, hey, listen, God hadn't called me to do that. I said, well, then God hasn't called you here. 
and you can't work here. Because if you're going to work here, you're going to be a servant. That means whatever needs to be done, you do it. That's what John did. John was their assistant. He could have counseled, he could have taught new believers, could have washed dishes. But he was an assistant, an under rower, an under shepherd to the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6 it says, When they had gone through the island to Paphos, which is the other side of the island, they went from east and now they're on the west, they found a certain sorcerer. This is wild. A false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Son of Jesus. That's what his name meant, Bar-Jesus. Who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name translated. Elymas, uh, Elymas means wizard or master withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, it's real unusual to find a Jewish sorcerer. Someone who claims to be Jewish but is practicing the black arts. And that's what he was practicing. He was practicing magic. In fact, the word here is magos, which is where we get the word magi. You know the three kings or the several magi who came to visit Jesus? We picture them as holy saints. They were much like these people. They practiced sorcery and astrology. And for some unknown reason, God got their attention through a star. And even the pagan sorcery Gentiles came to visit Jesus to worship him as king. They recognized there was something special about a baby born in Bethlehem. But here's a Jewish sorcerer. Elymas, or son of Jesus as he was called, claims to be Jewish. But he's a court wizard to this guy named Sergius Paulus. The problem was, is that because Rome expanded so rapidly and so effectively, Rome created roads from major cities to major cities, which allowed something to happen that never happened before. Suddenly, the East and the West were opened up to one another. And Western knowledge and philosophy could travel East, and Eastern weirdness and mysticism could travel West, and it did. And because people in the West had kind of a Roman, Greek, philosophical, logical, intellectual mindset, they were fascinated by all of the weirdness from the East. And so it infiltrated so that even some of the Jewish people were becoming involved in the sorcery. Very similar to today. We have churches who say they combine the best of the East and the West. Yoga and mysticism with the truths of Christianity. Of course, Christianity really isn't Western, is it? It came from the Mideast. But there's this desire to marry everything that is Christian and everything that is weird together. Same kind of a push today. Well, it happened back then as well. In fact, you can't find an influential newspaper in America that doesn't have an astrology column. Because two million of our people in this country avidly read and practice astrology. Two million. In our country, there are 10,000 full-time paid astrologers. 175,000 part-time. And the number is growing. There's a fascination with looking at the stars to predict the future. And it's always funny when somebody says, Yeah, I'm reading the astrology column. Praise God. Um, I'm a believer. and That's like this guy, a Jewish sorcerer. Uh, those words shouldn't be together, but they are in this context. He was Jewish by birth, but certainly not by practice. What's interesting about this is the tactics of the enemy. Satan is probably one of the most religious beings around. In fact, one of his primary tools for deception is religion. In India, they're very religious. We worship one God, they worship 300 million. Religion has deceived them into spiritual darkness. All over the world, different people groups are influenced by pagan religions. Paul went to Athens and he said, I perceive that you are very religious. For I've seen gods all over your city. In fact, I saw a god that didn't have a name, just an inscription to the unknown God. You're so religious that so you don't offend some God that you might have left out, you make a statue to the unknown God. 
You're very religious. I've come to declare to you the one true God. Satan has used religion to deceive people for years, and he still does it today. Makes a person feel smug because he's religious, because he practices some form of spirituality, and it can be very deceptive. Well, this is a perfect illustration or example of what Jesus said in Matthew 13, isn't it? That there would be the tares that are sown among the wheat. Satan would sow the sons of the evil one, the sons of the devil, along with the sons of God. And this is what we see here for Paul will call him a son of the devil or a child of the devil in the next few verses. It is not uncommon, it's certainly not new, To have men of great power, even government leaders, being controlled or influenced by people who practice cults and occults. Of course, we've heard about Adolf Hitler who practiced magic, the black arts, was influenced by witches and witchcraft. There are police departments today that will rely upon psychics to solve a crime, which I find very interesting. There was an article published this last week about a police officer in our church that I thought was totally unfair. God has given him great ability to uncover millions of dollars worth of drug traffic. Pulls people over, says, open your trunk. And I almost all of the time, 100%, I think, if not almost, successful. And now people are hassling him because... His methods aren't quite orthodox enough. Having people open their trunks without a just cause. Hey, are we fighting drugs here or not? And if we're fighting drugs and somebody's being successful at it, why are you barking at someone who's doing the work? In the police department and all over the country, we use psychics to solve a crime. Why does our city and our newspaper bark at someone who says, Hey, I trust the Lord. just like this guy back then. I heard about a hospital down in Florida that, in a sense, practices casting out demons in their own way. When they find somebody who's oppressed or depressed, who has come from the Caribbean islands and have come into Florida and they don't know how to handle them medically and psychologically, they'll have these spiritual kind of demonic uh, casting out exercises. And yet our own city will write an article a pretty poor one, when somebody is doing the job and God is giving him great success. Well, that's just the world for you. In verse 7, I want you to notice something. It says, he was with the proconsul. His name was Sergius Paulus. And notice this, he was an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. I want you to mark that. He was intelligent. And because he was intelligent, he wanted to hear the gospel. He had a spiritual hunger. And because he was smart, he identified his thirst. He identified his spiritual hunger. And he wanted to hear more. It was Thomas Aquinas who said, There is within every soul a thirst for happiness and meaning. And this man's intelligence identified his own thirst and he wanted to hear the gospel. Intelligence, you know. When I was first a Christian, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing would dissuade me from that position. Then I went to college. And as I was going to college and I had my first douse of biological persecution, when my first zoology teacher said, how many of you here believe in creation? That age-old, outdated, ridiculous theory. Well, I'm a new Christian. I wasn't about to raise my hand and be ridiculed. I just sat and I listened. Then as I went through further training, I took an anatomy class, and my anatomy teacher was talking about evolution, and of course, we all know that we evolved from monkeys. I mean, everything points that direction. Look at the hairs on your arm. My hairs don't do this, but most people's hairs, when they they grow down this way, it's because our ancient fathers used to hang on trees, and the sweat from the jungles caused their hair to grow that way. intelligent. (laughs) After a while, I got to think that these unbelievers think that we Christians are so stupid 
that if we even had a brain cell, it would die of loneliness. And so I started wondering, is this an intelligent position or is this some mythologically outdated tradition that insecure, depressed people cling to for hope? And I went on a search and I found that the Bible addresses that. In fact, the Bible doesn't say put your brain on the shelf. Jesus didn't die to take away your brains, but to take away your sin. And the Bible says that we should be able to give to every man an answer for the hope that lies in us. And I read that, I thought, every man an answer. And the more I researched, I found out that it was okay to think through honest doubts to come up with the right answer. Jesus didn't say, close your eyes and even though it's factual, disbelieve it, just take a leap of faith into the dark and believe anything I say. No. He said that the heart and the mind are supposed to work together. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind. And I find that they're meant to work in harmony together. And I find that my heart cannot rejoice in what my mind cannot accept. doesn't mean I have to believe everything if I see it only. There's a lot of things that you don't see that you believe in. You believe in goodness. You believe in love. You believe in team spirit. You don't see them. They're intangible, but you believe in them. In whom having not seen, yet we love and we rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. And plus, we have seen the changes of the Lord in our own personal life. And people used to ask me, I said, you know, I'm saved. How do you know? I was there when it happened, that's how I know. And people who knew me have seen the changes in my life, and they know too. And I have come to know that He is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oftentimes, people will say that they are intelligent, therefore they cannot believe. And often that's a smokescreen. If you were to really pin them with hard, tough questions about their own philosophy, they wouldn't be able to answer them. They haven't thought through it all the way to the end. They haven't been fair, but they believe, they just believe that intelligent people don't believe in Christianity. And so, well, I want to appear to be intelligent, so I won't believe in it. And they'll often say, I have an intellectual problem with Christianity. I'd really like to believe, but I'm too intelligent. Somebody came up to Professor Josh McDowell from a university back east, New England University, and said, Dr. McDowell, I hear what you're saying, and I'd really love to believe all that you say, but I can't. I have intellectual reservations. And McDowell said something really interesting. He said, I'm not saying I can, but if I could prove, if I could prove what I say is true, would you turn your life over to Jesus Christ tonight? The man thought for a few moments, and he said, no. McDowell said, well then, you don't have a problem with your ability, but with your will. You ought to be honest and not say, I'm unable to believe, but you should say, I'm unwilling to believe, despite the proof, despite the evidence. And you see, oftentimes it's a smokescreen for people who want to live the way they want to live in immoral ways, satiating their own sinful lusts, and so they'll say, I have intellectual problems. No, they have moral problems. Because if there is indeed a Lord who created them and a Jesus who died for their sins and they're accountable to Him, uh-oh. But you see, God doesn't want to turn you into something weird and take away your fun. He wants to fulfill your life. He's come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Not to take life from you. I admit, you look at some Christians and you'd think that He came to take life away from but don't let them be your example. Let Jesus be your example. He came that you might have it to the full, overflowing. There was a bumper sticker on a beat-up old Volkswagen bus. I mean, the thing was ready to fall apart. And it said, without Jesus, you ain't living. I thought, boy, that's it. Without Jesus, you ain't living. You could be driving the best car. Without Jesus, you ain't living. And you aren't living either. In verse 9, Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said, O full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? 
And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. First time we read Paul's name is in this verse. So far he's been called Saul of Tarsus. And it's been Barnabas and Saul. Now his name Paul is given. And pretty soon it's going to be Paul and his company, Paul and Barnabas. Paul will really take leadership from this time on. Saul was his Hebrew name. When he was eight days old, his daddy brought him to be circumcised. And he had to come up with a name. And the rabbi looked at him and said, All right, what's going to be his name? And his dad said, Saul. Because he was from the tribe of Benjamin, like King Saul. Going to call him Saul. And they circumcised him. But because he lived in the Roman province in the city of Tarsus, he was a Roman citizen, which meant on the ninth day, the day after the eighth, not too hard to figure that out, but the next day, he was to come up with his Latin name. And so his daddy looked at him and gave him the name Little. That's what Paul means, small, little. Could be that he was just a little runt. He said, ah, oh, Paul. And so that was his name. He had a Hebrew name and he had a Greek name. And his name was probably Shaul Paulus. That's probably how he was known. And when his daddy called him to come in for dinner, he'd say, Saul. And when his Greek boy, the little friends in his neighborhood called him, they said, Paul. Now he's given the Greek name from the Hebrew to the Greek, signifying he is now the apostle to the Gentiles. He sort of takes over in taking the gospel to the Gentile nations around, getting the gospel out. Notice what it says, though, concerning him. He was filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to bring that to your attention because he says some pretty scathing, obnoxious words after this. And it's important to know that he wasn't just overflowing with negative emotion and went overboard and just spouted off, but he was controlled. That's what the word in Greek means. He was controlled by the Holy Spirit when he said this. This is interesting because there are groups who say every time a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, he'll prophesy or speak in tongues or something miraculous happens. Not so. Uh, here Paul s says some bold, confrontive language filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will manifest himself at different times, in different ways. He's filled with the Holy Spirit or controlled, and he has some tough things to say. Which brings up an interesting question. When you have people who oppose you, who disagree with you, who are not in line with what you feel and know is biblical truth, how do you approach them? There's really not one pat answer for that question. Because some people would say, rebuke them. <laughs> Other people would say, let them go. The truth is, there is not one approach for every person. It depends on the heart of the person. And there's a very key passage I want to share with you out of 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll read it to you. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, but be patient to all. So first of all, warn those who are unruly. It means to keep military order. There are some people whose lives are so undisciplined and they're unruly, and it takes a stiff admonition. Hey, get in line. You're breaking rank. And that's what the word signifies. The unruly, they've broken rank. They're not in submission to the Lord or to His his body. And so it's stiffer. You warn them. Secondly, it says comfort the faint-hearted, which means to console those people who want to drop out. Those people who want to give up. Oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. I just want to quit. Over well, to comfort them. Hey, God's still on the throne. Be encouraged. You're faint-hearted. Thirdly, uphold the weak. The weak, it speaks about clinging on or holding on to those who are tempted to fall into sin. They're weak in the flesh. They're drawn easily into the temptations of the flesh. Uphold them. Cling to them. Don't let them go. Don't say, okay, well, if you're going to fall, you're going to sin. Get out of here. Hey, brother, don't. Call me if you need me. Let me hold you up. So warn, comfort, and uphold. What's your approach? It depends on the individual and the heart of the individual. There's not one canned approach. You can't confront everybody. 
You can't encourage everybody. You can't warn everybody. You can't uphold everybody. It depends on the condition of the heart of that person. But Paul is not just warning, but he's shooting out a scathing accusation. And I call this holy indignation. There's a time for anger. In fact, you ought to be angry at some things if you're a Christian. Sin ought to make you angry. When you see sin in this world, you shouldn't say, well, yeah, well, it just happens. You ought to be angry at it. Not angry at the people, but at Satan and what he has done to those people. And sometimes that will even involve a strong rebuke to those people who are involved in that evil. I think of Jesus. How did he approach people? Well, he went up to a whore one time and he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He went up to a tax collector and after admonishing the tax collector, he said, follow me. But he went up to Pharisees and scribes and he pronounced scathing denunciations upon them, much like Paul did to this Jewish sorcerer. And if you're not familiar with it, I'm going to read a couple of portions of Matthew 23 to you. You can turn there if you want. It's too vast to read it all. There's 39 verses, but I want to read a few of them. And I'll tell you what, I've got to be honest with you. I really like this chapter. It might seem a little weird, but I really like it. And I like it for this reason. Too many people have the wrong idea of Jesus. The Sunday school version of Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. And that's all the view they have of Jesus. Well, he was gentle, he was meek and mild, but there was times where you don't want to mess with him. And if you were a religious hypocrite, he might look at you and he might say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, down in verse 13. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You devour widows' houses. For a pretense, make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte or convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he is obliged to perform it. Fools, blind, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that sanctifies it, or the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Verse 24, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And uh, it gets worse as it goes along. What's fascinating is that Jesus only spoke such language to religious hypocrites, the legalists who tried to appear holier than the rest. Oh, he came unglued because they forsook mercy and they were so nitpicky, they strained at gnats, they swallowed camels. It was called righteous indignation. There's a time for it. There's a time to love, this is, there's a time to hate. And he hated sin and he came out against it. And here Paul the Apostle, and I love it too. He turns to him and he says, O full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? He gets pretty harsh. Now, again, he's not being emotionally carried away. He didn't just spout this off. He's not going... <sighs> I think he spoke this with perfect logic and determination. I want you to follow this with me. First of all, look at that verse. He identifies the evil motives, for he says, you are full of all deceit and fraud. That's your motivation. You're trying to deceive the proconsul and turn him away from the faith. That's your motivation. It's deceitfulness. You've come for the reason to keep this man from coming to know Christ. 
You know, we have had people come into the church for that very reason. They've come from the organization of Reverend Sun Young Moon. They've tried to appear like a Christian. We've had people from the Satanist church come in. We've had people from the Mormon church come in who are looking to prey upon people who are not equipped in the Word and well-founded upon the Scripture, who would listen to their talking and often draw them away to their own cause. Paul identifies the motivation, full of all deceit and fraud. Look at that verse again. Secondly, the result of their evil motives. You're a son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. That's the result of it. And finally, what the motives have led him to do. You are perverting the straight ways of the Lord. So he speaks with great determination and logic. You say, but isn't that a little harsh for a Christian leader or a Christian anywhere, for that matter, to say against someone else? Well, again, listen to Jesus. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, when Paul and when Jesus called these fellows sons of the devil, what did he mean by that? Well, he meant like father, like son. You have the devil's characteristics in your life. You're of your father, the devil. What he does, you do. How he thinks, you think. That's what Paul meant when he called him a son of the devil. What's interesting is the name this guy had, son of Jesus. He had the right name, but he was really a son of the devil. He called himself Bar-Jesus, but he wasn't Bar-Jesus, he was Bar-Devil. He was the son of the devil. Now, that's important because there's a lot of people who have the name Christian, but they're not. Jesus wrote a letter to a church, the church of Sardis. And he wrote to them and he said, You have a name that you live, but you are dead. You've got the outward manifestation and the reputation that you're really alive and really on the go. But there's no spiritual life within you. It's just a name. It's just a reputation, but you're not producing the goods. So it's a name that you're alive, but you're dead. A form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And finally, look in verse 11 of our text. And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Isn't that interesting? One who claimed to lead others is now saying, please lead me. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished, or we might say in modern vernacular, totally blown away at the teaching of the Lord. Why of all, for lack of a better term, curses that Paul could have brought upon this person, why did he say you're going to be blind for a season? I think it's because Paul himself knew the power of such an experience. For he was once on the Damascus Road, got knocked to the ground, and he couldn't see for three days. And it was during that darkness when he couldn't see anything that he could only think. There was no external input going in his brain from his vision. He had to just in silence and in darkness think, and it penetrated his heart. And Paul knew the power of that kind of darkness. So he thought, I'm going to blast him. Lord, you're going to blast him like... You blasted me and got my attention. You'll be blind for a time. And so he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Actually, you look at this, you think, well, that's kind of harsh. No, it's an act of mercy. Remember what God did to Ananias? He killed him. Probably because Ananias was a Christian and God was going to just take him home. He was useless at that point. But this was an act of mercy. This was preliminary judgment. This should get his attention so he would repent. Instead of taking his life and facing eternal judgment, God gave him a second chance. Now, this is a method of God. Often God will preliminarily judge a person so that the person hopefully will wake up so he doesn't have to have a greater judgment. Pharaoh. God gave him chance after chance after chance as God was warning him with plagues that he himself was experiencing. But he kept hardening his heart to the point where God completely destroyed him. There was preliminary judgment. He didn't listen to it. And then he was out of the picture. That's why when I meet an unbeliever, I spoke to a guy in a hospital one time. He was laying flat on his back. Somebody shot him. 
He said, you know, I've been thinking about becoming a Christian. I haven't been walking with the Lord. And I said, well, you know what? Isn't God merciful? You're alive. You could have been dead. This should get your attention. You've got a second chance. You ought to use it. And so I see this here as an act of mercy. Elymas was blinded in darkness. If he didn't respond, he would be blinded with everlasting death and everlasting darkness. So it's kind of a preliminary judgment. This man, Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed, I think you would too, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so there was opposition, but God orchestrated it for good. That's the beauty of it. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. We saw back in verse 2 and then back in verse 4. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. They were separated by the Holy Spirit and they were strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Whatever God calls you to do, even if you get opposition in what you do, God will strengthen you in it and powerfully show Himself in whatever situation you find yourself in. But I think of how many people there might be who are in a sense like this sorcerer. They kind of believe in a lot of things, but they've never really surrendered themselves to Jesus Christ. I've said this saying recently a few times, but it's so true. Born once and you die twice. Born twice, you die once. See, if you're just born into this world without a second birth being born again, you will die two times. You will die physically, but you will die spiritually and be separated from God. But if you're born twice, then you'll only die once. If you're born into this world and then born again, you'll have that opportunity to only die one time physically. And some of you may not even die physically if the Lord comes back before then. But you'll only die once, but not spiritually. You'll have a resurrection into eternal life. And that's an opportunity that God sets before you. God does not delight in punishing people. God does not delight in condemning people. He delights in saving people. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the missionary work that has become a model for us. As they waited upon the Holy Spirit, there was an upreach. As they were together, there was inreach. You conducted them to do outreach. They were spirit-separated, spirit-sent and spirit-saturated. I pray, Lord, that we might be saturated in your Holy Spirit, sent out by you to do your work. And, Father, that our desire would be to serve and that you'd anoint our service. And, Lord, I pray for those who are here tonight. You've given them a gift of a brain. You've given them intelligence. I pray that that intelligence would identify the need and the thirst that they have deep within their heart to come and know Christ. Lord, I pray that if they haven't made that decision, that they would tonight before the evening's over. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.